Hello everybody, this is Malcolm Heading. Once again, welcome to this, our fifth study in terms of Paul's letter, his first letter to the believers, the church at Thessaloniki. What a wonderful letter this is, filled with so much incredible truth and that which can inspire us to live for Jesus and love him the more. So thank you so much for joining me today. We now get to study five, and that is chapter two, verses 13 to 16. Just to recap, I want to state that Paul has thus far applauded the believers at Thessaloniki for their genuine faith in Christ Jesus that brought forth powerful transformation in their lives and that also impacted the region with the glorious gospel of Jesus. However, it also plunged them into persecution as the counterculture of Jesus was being embraced by more and more people. And therefore, it collided with the world around them. He is, however, rightly proud of them and thus reaffirms his love for them and sets forth the true motivations that he has in his heart in terms of his ministry and calling to be a servant of God among them. These are wonderful insights into the attitudes and principles that should guide and govern every person called into the ministry. And we should take note of them. Now then, in the section before us today, chapter 2, and of course, verses 13 to 16, Paul gives us his concluding summary to all the things that he has just said. And so we note the following. Number one, Paul affirms the power of prayer and that of the Word of God. Paul affirms the power of prayer and that of the Word of God. Listen to these words. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you, were, you welcomed it not as the word from men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. You know, prayer should be the unceasing activity of our lives. It should, of course, always be punctuated with thanksgiving. Paul thanks God that he remembers them. And in that regard, he means in prayer, day and night. You know, it can be said that the great sin of the modern church is that it is, by and large, prayerless. And that is in stark contrast to what Jesus said about the character of, of a local church or the people of God because he said that his house should be a house of prayer 
for all nations. We read that in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 13. But this is not true, is it? Because the house of God, in many respects, all over the world, has become a place of entertainment, good feelings, positive thinking, and very, very proactive sermons and platform-dominated ministry, but no prayer, very little prayer. Certainly, the overwhelming people from congregation to congregation are not involved in any type of corporate prayer. My house, said Jesus, is a house of prayer for all nations. Lip service is also given to the concept of the priesthood of all believers and to the powerful demonstration and manifestation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's these and this type of life that constitutes the church of Jesus when it is described as a temple of the Holy Spirit. And in this temple, there should be this remarkable demonstration of his presence flowing out from the lives of his people. We have to hear this and somehow we have to rectify it. So Paul affirms the power of prayer, but then he also goes on to affirm the power of the word of God. And here in this passage, he tells us that it must be carried by faithful preachers. He came as a faithful preacher to them, he says, and he gave them the word of God. And secondly, he says then, it must be welcomed as indeed the very word of God from heaven. That which we have in our hands is so precious. This wonderful book called the Bible, we sometimes take it for granted. We sometimes treat it as an equal with other books. But my friends, it is the very word of God from heaven. And secondly, he says that the word of God must be truly embraced in a manner that it transforms our lives because it effectively works in us. That's amazing. This book has the power to transform your character, to change you into something beautiful. And therein lies it's amazing importance. In short, if we neglect the word of God, we really neglect the power and the means by which God, by Jesus Christ, transforms us into his image. We neglect the word of God then to our own spiritual peril. And that's why Jesus said that man shall not live by bread alone, but in fact, by every word that is breathed or comes from the word of God. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 4. All this reminds us that we must have 
a high view of the Bible as it reflects the nature of God, the glory of Christ and the true state of man. We must honor the Bible and seek to understand it properly. And Paul knew this. And so in his pastoral epistles to Timothy, he underlines it when he says this. Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Again, he says this in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And then we have the Apostle Peter, who also has this to say about the importance of the word of God. In 2 Peter chapter 1, 20 to 21, we read the following. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This book, my friends, never came about because of men or by the will of men. It came from God as holy men and prophets and apostles were moved by the Holy Spirit. And here we have it today. What a precious treasure. And then secondly, Paul affirms the reality of trial and persecution. Listen to these words. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they do not please God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as to always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Chapter 2, 14 to 16. Now this reminds us that the true testimony of Jesus will enrage those in the world and induce them to resistance. It will enrage them and it will bring forth a resistance to the word of God when it is heard. It will also enrage so-called Christians and peoples who claim the name of Christ but have no knowledge of him. Paul said of these that they deny the power of true religion, of true religion, form of godliness lives in their lives 
but it's void of the real thing. And sometimes this will be the source of the greatest persecution that the church will have to face and endure. This was the experience of the first church. Those who should have received the message of Jesus ended up rejecting it, resisting it, and persecuting those who did receive it. Now then, the Jews of Jesus' time had a remarkable spiritual history, whereas in terms of the actions of God in their national journey as a people, they had witnessed amazing things like the exodus from Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, God coming down on Mount Sinai to talk with them, and many wonderful miracles of deliverance. In addition, they were sent great prophets and kings. Just think of David and Solomon. Just think of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and many more. They were sent and had great prophets and kings. And so their spiritual heritage was indeed in every way remarkable. And yet, when their Messiah of promise arrived, they rejected him and killed him. The question we ask is, how could this be? This is the testimony of Paul. This passage is very clear and may be troublesome to many, but it is the truth. Well, the truth is, their scriptures had warned them of this, and by the time that Jesus came, they had, in fact, fallen into apostasy. Their rabbis had actually affirmed this, in that the catastrophe that overtook them in AD 70 when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, was attributed by these rabbis to the fact that they had hated God and one another without a cause. Given that all things spiritual run counter, you need to know that, to our carnal hearts, and have to be spiritually discerned or appraised. They, being far from God and blind spiritually, resisted their prophets, rejected their Messiah, and crucified him in concert with the Romans. It is in Romans chapter 8 that Paul says, that to the carnal mind, the man without God, the man who has a form of religion, the man who names the name of God, but has no knowledge of him. This person, Paul says, has no ability to discern spiritual things, to understand them, or to even appraise them. They are foreign to him. 
And so Paul says in Romans chapter 8 and verses 6 to 8, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, nor indeed can be. And that's exactly what happened when Jesus came. They were far from God. They hated one another. They were carnally minded. They were unable to recognize him or spiritually appraise him. And so they killed him. But that generation, you see, is to be seen as unique. And, of course, as a sinful one. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, understood that. He understood that the sins of that generation were overflowing in a way. And, and in effect, and in a way, should we say, they had accumulated to a point where successive generations had now produced this overflowing cup of wickedness. It's into that spiritual environment that Jesus stepped. Listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 11, verses 16 to 24. But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a winebibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by its children. And then he went on to say, Hear this carefully. Woe to you, Chorazan. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Strong medicine, indeed, as he summed up this cup of sinfulness overflowing in that generation. And this consequent consequently led to the destruction of Jerusalem and the removal of their national institutions and life and exile into the four corners of the world. However, for all of this, Scripture nevertheless affirms, and we need to hear this, for all of this, Scripture nevertheless affirms 
that they are not Christ killers. As being spiritually darkened, they killed him in ignorance. In Acts chapter 3 and verse 17, the great apostle Peter, who heard the words of Jesus on the hills of the Galilee and everywhere else, this great apostle, having this rich historical background of having walked with Jesus, in Acts chapter 3 and verse 17, he says, And yet now, brethren, speaking of the death of Christ and their hand in it, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Peter, the apostle, Yes, as Paul says, they killed Jesus. But, as Peter affirms, they did it in ignorance. Their judgment in AD 70, according to Scripture, was more related to their history of rejection and also their rejection of the gospel message than for their hand in the death of Christ. We find that in Acts chapter 13, where Paul, having time and time again gone to the synagogues and preached the word of God, actually says this. And uh, this is what he said. Hear it carefully. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us. Notice that their sin was their rejection of the apostolic message of the resurrection of Jesus. We need to remember that. And so Jesus himself, while warning of this coming judgment, also predicted Israel's national restoration in Luke chapter 21, verse 24. He said that the times of the Gentiles would take this people into the four corners of the earth. But when these times are fulfilled, they would come back just before his second coming and be restored to Israel and in particular to the city of Jerusalem. Now then, we need to hear the following. And it's with these words that I close today. From time to time, this spiritual blindness has also settled upon the church as she, just like the Jews of Jesus' time, has resisted the will of God and has also stoned and burned at the stake her own prophets that God in his grace had sent her. In fact, the book of Revelation in the 17th chapter pictures a worldwide apostate church likened to a harlot or a whore that will arise in the earth and be guilty 
of spilling the blood of the saints. That is the blood of Christians. You can read that in Revelation 17, verses 1 to 6. So here we have two groups, both claiming the name of Christ, but the one killing the other. The testimony of history confirms both and thus confirms this. And therefore the underlying truth is that religion, if unhinged from a personal relationship with God, will in fact become an enemy of his true followers. There are so many in the wider Christian church who do not know Christ. And when confronted with true commitment to him, they resisted. This was part of my testimony when I first came to Jesus. My family named the name of Christ. But when they saw our zeal and willingness to follow him no matter what, they even threatened to disown us. Two groups, both claiming the name of Christ. But the one set against the other. And John saw this, an apostate church, a harlot, having a form of godliness, denying the power of, of that, but guilty of the blood of the saints. Religion, if unhinged from a personal relationship with God, will in fact become an enemy of his true followers. Jesus knew this and sadly confirmed that a day would come when people will think that they are serving God by killing others. Quite a thought. The believers at Thessaloniki found this to be true, as did the first century Jewish believers in Jerusalem that he mentions here. And many more brave followers of Jesus down through the centuries. This has been their experience. And even today in the Middle East and beyond, the followers of Jesus are being persecuted. This will continue to be our lot. But the grace of God is well able to secure those who love him in times of trouble. Paul knows this. And in this passage, he's thankful for it. This is Malcolm Heading.